So I think one of the problems with this whole discussion about where did we come from is that people think that where we came from determines who we are and what our value is and our purpose is. For Christians, we believe that our value and purpose comes from the fact that we are made and loved by God, not by our origin. In fact, that's a very fundamental Christian belief. We're all equally valuable in God's sight. And so it's important for Christians to remember that's a, a deep theological um, principle that also holds for our physical origins. So whether we came about by God giving um, inevitable humans how he set the process, or whether we came about because God tweaked the process at some point in evolution history, doesn't determine anything about us that's important in terms of value. It's a genuinely interesting question, actually a scientific question, but it's not clear to me how much it tells us theologically. So I'm Ard Louis and I'm a professor of theoretical physics here in the University of Oxford. Welcome to Language of God. I'm Colin Hogorf, your host while Jim Stump is away on sabbatical. But don't worry, before Jim left, he recorded several interviews, and I have one of those for you here. We met Ard Louie in the new state-of-the-art physics building on the campus of the University of Oxford, where he walked us to the main floor staircase where we could look down 50 feet to see where the labs were that were built with advanced vibration dampening systems for sensitive experimental physics research. We didn't go down, though, but up to where the theoretical physicists work which consists mostly of warm offices and cozy sitting areas where groups were working with equations on huge chalkboards. Art Louis is one of those theoretical physicists. He's also been deeply involved in the science and religion conversation. He's an associate with the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion, a member of the International Society for Science and Religion, and he served on the Biologist Board of Directors for nine years. Ard's recent science interest, which we spend much of the episode discussing, focuses on explaining why, out of the seemingly infinite possible outcomes, we tend to find biological structures that are symmetrical and functional. If you haven't spent a lot of time thinking about the symmetry of biological structures or how they self-assemble, that's okay. Ard does a great job of explaining the science and why it's interesting and important, and also the limits of the science to explain some of our biggest questions. Let's get to the conversation. Well, Ard Louie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for talking to us, especially on your home home territory here, which we need to hear a story about because you are a Dutchman who grew up in Africa, now living in Oxford. Unpack a little bit of that. How did that all happen? Well, the reason I'm living in Oxford is just because they offered me a job. Um, that's basically it. So I, I, it's good work if you can get it. Right? Good work, exactly. So I, um, so I originally did my undergraduate degree in Utrecht, in the Netherlands. So I was, I, I grew up in Gabon, Central Africa, then um, went back to the Netherlands, did undergraduate degree, did a PhD in the U.S. Theoretical physics at Cornell University. Then I went to Cambridge. Mm. I worked there in theoretical chemistry, and then I got offered a job here. So I moved. So over. what year did you move to Oxford? Two thousand six. Okay. So go back a little bit more. You grew up in Gabon. Yeah. To missionary parents? Yes, kind of. They went there to work in a school, a mission school, um, run by the Gabonese church in the middle of the jungle. Then they later transitioned to other kinds of work. My father's a botanist, so he started the herbarium in Gabon, which is, a, herbarium is like a library for plants. You put copies of every plant. And back then, when he was starting to work, the idea was that tropical forests were relatively boring or the African one. The idea was that the, the South American one was very diverse, the African wasn't. But um, 
Gabon, for example, they have a, a transect, which is a fancy name for a little piece of land on which you, like a, a certain fixed size of land where you count the species, and they, they counted the second highest number per hectare ever found. Wow, like what's that number like? I, it's like, I think, I forget the exact number on the order of several hundred. Wow. And so Gabon, I know Gabon has um, thousands of species, quite a bit more than say a country like France, even though it's all rainforests. So what's interesting with the rainforests, and I've learned that from my father, is you look at it, you know, it all just looks green, it's the first eye, but as you look more carefully, then you get different kinds of rainforests. So the early forests, when you first cut something down, are relatively, um, have a small number of species. But then over time, as they get what they call primary forests, which is older forest, it's incredibly rich. So it's an incredibly diverse set of plant species mm. that all live together. So it's something very beautiful. And there must be something in there that's part of the story that drew you to science, to yeah, at I least think observation so. I mean, of nature, yeah, at least. I'm sure that did. I mean, it's hard to know. I mean, I loved science. I was I actually loved physics, and I was having a physics. So apparently my parents tell me, I don't remember the story, but they tell me that at some point in my teenage years, I sat them down and said, you know, mom and dad, I have something to say that's going to very disappoint you. And I think, you know, this, obviously if you have a parent of a teenager, you, this is a, <laughs> never, you, know, you worry, you sit down. And I told them that I was going to be a physicist, not a biologist. Oh, was that disappointing? I, think they, I, think, I don't think they, they didn't, um, they were very gracious about that. They're both biologists. And so I remember, for example, you know, they would classically be walking somewhere. They'd suddenly stop, bend down, because they saw some plants and you know, start talking about it. And my, my sister and I would discreetly walk away and pretend we didn't know these people. <laughs> so I think I probably- <laughs> How old were you in those years that uh, you lived teenage in Teenage years. Oh, so I lived there from when I was, uh, just after I was born until hmm. I was 16. Hmm. And you were as and well- My parents still live there, they still live they there. They still live there, yeah, I was just I was just there in July. Oh, yeah. wow. Um, and um, so I have a lot of friends there. I really like that. So, so there's some connection to the church in Gabon too. Yeah, what's, yeah. what's your religious tradition growing so I, up? So I, I grew up in there in an evangelical Christian church and was very heavily impacted by that. Um, so a, a local Gabonese church a network that my parents are part of. Um, and that was very influential for me and still is. And there were never any conflicts between the scientific work that they were doing and the church community they were part of, or is that just an American hang-up that well, we see? No, no, have? it's not. It's not just an American hang-up. I mean, it's it's. Um, this is a francophone country, so the French have a very strong sense of secular laicite. So um, this, the idea of secularism, like the American Americans have a strong sense of secularism, the French have it even stronger. Mm -hmm. So you, um, so definitely, the idea that. Science, and then they don't mean just natural sciences, but actually a bit more like what the Germans, Wissenschaft, like the Germans took all kinds of thinking, philosophy. So, for example, you take philosophy in secondary school, in high school, basically, it's very important. And it's often the idea is that's about learning and faith or something completely different. So, in that context, the, there's definitely a, a strong sense of faith versus science. Obviously, in the African context, it's different because people are, by, by nature, very deeply religious. It's very much part of the culture. And so atheism doesn't have the same ring to it. Mm -hmm. And even science, I think people will study it and see it as a different category. So I didn't really grow up with very much of this kind of conflict around. Um, I did go to a school run by an American missionaries. And so I, I did was introduced to um, uh, young earth creationism there. Were you? It was taught at the school. My parents just. They said this is you know, one of these strange things that Americans do. 
don't pay too much attention to it. Um, there was Our greatest also, export, I'm afraid. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, 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 it's interesting. So for me, it just, you know, there, there's also, they were also very much into kind of end times things. Mm. Some, some of them were, I mean, there's obviously yep. always a wide diversity yep. of people. And I think even on this question of creation evolution, there's a wide diversity. There are definitely people that were very much on a young earth side. Um, so I remember they had a book called The Handy Dandy Evolution Refuture. Um, <laughs> I remember it mainly because the title was so interesting, um, and um, uh, they're also very interested in this kind of end times, you know, Tim LaHaye left behind, oh, yeah. which my father used to call Christian science fiction. And so I think <laughs> in my mind, these things all kind of fell into the same uh, eccentricities of the Americans, um, mm. which I didn't take that seriously. I think it's more when I went to the Netherlands that I felt the conflict more strongly. And I think the conflict, I don't think the conflict isn't really as much with science as it was with this idea of scientism. So the idea that science or something like it can explain everything that's important. And in the kind of continental context, that would be broader than just natural sciences. That would include philosophy and um, psychology. And somehow there's an inbuilt idea that this will explain everything. If it hasn't done yet, it will. And, um, and I think if you then go to university and you have a Christian faith and these two kind of worldviews collide a little bit, um, partially because they're, you're, they're, they're presented as a kind of false dichotomy. Um, so I think I, I definitely experienced that as a student. Obviously, you know, if you, I think if you grew up in a place like Gabon where faith is so strong, it also seems odd when people completely don't believe in God. It's like a strange thing. So I also found it strange. So when I'm like, the Netherlands is in certain ways a very secular country, so that kind of secularity I found strange. But it was definitely something I had to work through intellectually. Mm. Um, well, we might come back in our conversation to some of those kinds of questions uh, in a little bit. But let's hear first about some of the science that you're doing here now. So here we are sitting up in the top. What you said was the theoretical section of the physics building here in Oxford. Tell us uh, about your work here. Yeah, so this where the, the theory basically means that we don't do experiments. Um, so as you look around, you can't see this on the podcast, but you just see desks and blackboards. <laughs> we have to fight quite hard to get blackboards in real chalk because nowadays everyone's whiteboards, but we still prefer... <laughs> Why is that? Yeah, it's just when you write equations, it's just easier with a chalk. Um, in fact, we have, if you look around, you have this very famous Hago Romo chalk, which is the chalk that originally came from Japan. Now it's made in Korea. But it, it doesn't, um, it's not dusty. No dust. Yeah, exactly. So at some point when the Japanese company couldn't find an heir to take over, this stuff started selling for $100 each on eBay. <laughs> so now a Korean company took it over, or a Korean family took it over, so now it's come back again. So we love this. So we, basically I, I work with pen and paper, chalk, or computers. And then I'm mainly interested in biological physics these days. So I started out doing kind of more traditional things like quantum theory, but now I've moved into trying to use ideas from physics to understand questions in biology. And one of the things I'm most interested in is self-assembly. So your body is full of things that make themselves, you know, little machines that can walk on tracks or little motors that can spin around and around and around. And they're really extraordinary. If I showed you one that you could hold in your hand and just see with your eyes, it would be made in a factory. So some large assembly line would make this something much more complicated than the thing itself. But these things make themselves, by which I mean they float around in the cell and the proteins, which are the little molecules by which they're made, just kind of spontaneously stick together in exactly the right space. It's the equivalent of taking Lego blocks 
adding some glue, putting it in a box, shaking it a little bit because these small things get shaken about by thermal fluctuations. And let's say I put, that, I put them into a box, I shook it, and out came a fully formed train. That's effectively what nature does. And it's really extraordinary because if I put glue on these things, I put glue on my Legos and I shake them, I just get junk. And every time I get it, I get a slightly different piece of junk because the number of ways to make not train <laughs> is much, much bigger than the number of ways to make train, which is basically just a few ways. So the really interesting question is, how does that how work? Does that happen? Yeah. And actually, I was, it was probably 15 years ago that I started thinking about this. I just thought, well, how does that happen? That's so strange because there must be some, something very interesting about the, the physics of it or the maths of it, right? So you've got this many possibilities that are not the thing you want and only a few that are the ones you want. And how do you find them? It's like a, you have a needle in a haystack. How do you put your hand in and find the needle each time? And so I got very interested in that. And then I've been interested more recently in the evolution of these systems because we think these came about by evolutionary processes. So rather than um, me coming in and saying, okay, I want to have a little train. I'm going to put some glue here and some glue there and some glue there. These glues just kind of randomly appear on things. And yet they form these really well-defined um, assembling structures. So it's kind of cool and amazing. So I've been interested in this question, like how on earth would you get something like that? So how much of this can you explain to a general audience um, on a podcast without using uh, equations and your fancy chalk here of how this actually works? Because one of this is one of the criticisms that we at BioLogos hear from people who are objecting to evolution in some sense of how could this just happen this way? How in the world are there natural explanations for how these tiny little particles assemble into meaningful structures as opposed to what you're saying, there are many, many, many more ways that it could go wrong than it could actually work. How, how does it work then? What have you found out these last 15 years? Well, I think, I think it's, a, it's a super interesting question to ask how does it work? It clearly does work because we see it. And so then the question is how? And um, so, so what I got interested in is thinking about what is evolution really doing when it's looking for new, when, so you say when it's searching for new patterns. And so the, the important thing is to think, I think, about evolution searching in the space of algorithms. That sounds very fancy, but algorithms like a computer program. So when I have a bunch of particles together in a box with various ways of sticking to each other, I can change the ways that they stick. That's like changing the program that makes them do something. And then what I'm now claiming is that if you think about theories of algorithms, then you can show that on certain kinds of shapes, so shapes that have short algorithms are easier to make than shapes that have long algorithms because I'm more likely to find a short algorithm than a long algorithm. And that should be reflected in the kinds of shapes that we find. Um, so one example, one different way of thinking about this, it's not actually self-assembly, but it's maybe a little easier to visualize is, I think about tree shapes. So trees have different shapes. Right? And you might think, oh, that's because in the DNA of the tree is some kind of blueprint that looks like an architectural drawing. And that tells me exactly where every leaf goes and every branch goes. But that's not how a tree does it. It has a little um, stochastic algorithm, so a random algorithm, that says make a branch with certain probability, make a leaf with certain probability, and if you do one kind, you get something that looks like an oak tree, and if you do another one, it might look like a weeping willow. They look quite different, although they have slightly different algorithms. In fact, if you took that oak DNA and replanted it, it would make an oak tree again, which would look slightly different from 
the way it grew before, even though it has exactly the same DNA, because there's some randomness in how it makes things. But it still we distinguish it'll be, be an oak. So now imagine that the environment changes and the oak tree needs to become more willow tree-like. So what is it, what, when you think about that, it's very different if I have a blueprint of an oak tree and, a, and I need to change it so that it looks like the blueprint of a willow tree, or I have a little algorithm that makes leaves and branches a certain probability, and I want to go to a willow tree shape. It might be really easy to do so. It might be just one or two tweaks, and suddenly the whole thing looks like a willow. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So, so um, just for the sake of our audience, yeah. understanding where these tweaks are happening, in the DNA itself, yeah. so some mutation of one genetic base that could have a fairly significant effect on not, I, I think too often we think there's this direct relationship between that DNA and what it ends up looking like, the phenotype, right? Yeah, yeah, but right, yeah. there's, there's something a little more complex going on exactly. there. That so, the, so the DNA is really more like, so I think one, so I'm talking about this blueprint analogy to say that's not the right way of thinking about it. It's maybe more like thinking like a recipe and a dish. So the DNA is like the recipe, and you can tweak the recipe a little bit, and the dish might look really different. Mm -hmm. And so the important thing to remember is that you are not your DNA, just like the recipe is not the dish. And so the recipe is like the, the, the set of rules that are used. And so I can write the recipe out, that's like the DNA, but actually I have to interpret it. And you know, if the recipe says, put in one spoon of sugar, or put in one cup of sugar. Those are two very different things. The, the meal might taste very differently, but the, the, it's only a few letters that have changed. Mm. Right? And so the idea is that you can think about the way evolution works in these kind of pattern formations as a kind of recipe. This is make a branch, make a leaf. And so I might say, make a branch quickly or make a branch slowly, and that might make a very different shape. So that once you think about it that way, you realize, oh, okay, so evolution is really searching in this kind of more abstract space of shapes. And then if I get back to my self-assembling proteins, then, well, what's easy to make? Well, if I, have a, I want to make a big structure, it's much easier to say, take this unit and repeat it 10 times, for example, than to tell you where every single one of the 10 units has to go. So this is why you're saying the shorter ones are, are more likely to appear. More likely going to happen, and then we just keep connecting that same thing over and over again. Yeah. So this is now to your work uh, related to symmetry, right? Exactly. So one so. of the consequences of that is that if you see, if I make something with a short, I have a short description of it, then it's likely to be more symmetric because I say I have to repeat something n times. That's going to have some symmetries to it. So we've just written a paper where we claim that we can explain a lot of the symmetries seen in these structures in our bodies just from this argument about algorithms, that short algorithms are more likely to happen. And so we have to make a prediction about how often you should see certain types of symmetries, and then we look in nature and we can more or less predict what you see. And that's interesting because I think it tells us that on the one hand, um, something really cool like symmetric structures naturally appear from this algorithmic way of thinking about evolution. It's also interesting because it's a non is a fancy word, a non-adaptive explanation. So I'm not talking about natural selection at all. I'm just saying there's something about the structure of the way the world works that makes you more likely to get symmetric structures than structures that are not symmetric. So if you were just to survey all the things out here naturally occurring, there would be more symmetrical 
objects, more symmetrical shapes than we would otherwise think would happen just yeah, randomly. Yeah. And not just, so, not, yeah, not just a few more, but like exponentially more. Like <laughs> so, gazillion more. I mean, we're talking about our bodies. We have an ear on each side of our head and an eye here and here, and so arms on each side, and lots of things work this way because it's more efficient for the DNA to yeah, produce yeah. body So I should be, like I should be careful and say, I, you know, my, our theory hasn't, we haven't used our theory to look at bodies yet. It's a much more complicated story. But I think something like this must be true. So this principle, I think the way you explained it is almost certainly true, although I've only shown it for, for the self-assembling structures and not for brains or bodies or anything big like that. And is there some kind of direct relationship between symmetrical DNA and then the phenotype that comes out symmetrical looking? I, I, I don't think so. You don't think so? No, so I don't think the DNA needs to be symmetric at all. But the just it needs to it just needs to encode things efficiently. Hmm. That's a theory. So the reason I, I, you asked me what I'm interested in, this is what I'm interested in. You should be careful when you ask a scientist what are you working on because they'll start working talking about it for a long time. <laughs> you know, I would say to people, um, one of the great things about being a scientist is that you get paid to work on things you find interesting. By definition, if I wasn't interested in what I was working on, I shouldn't. I should choose change to something else. And um, so we're very fortunate that we've got, I get paid in this case for the British taxpayers, their taxpayer money. Um, and you might wonder why that sounds a bit frivolous to pay me to work on what I'm interested in. But historically, many of the greatest scientific discoveries have come from this kind of curiosity-driven research from somebody saying, hey, that's strange. I wonder why that works. Mm -hmm. And then they start working on it. And so we have a tradition of this kind of research where basically we're allowed to work on what we think is interesting in the hope that something useful will come out. Um, okay, so I have a few follow-up questions on this work. One, how do you discover it just using your paper and pencil and the chalkboards? How do you, I mean, there has to be some empirical content that you're taking in that you're working on and trying to figure out, right? Yeah, exactly. So we so spent- What is that? So, so that what we've done in this particular case is part of it is some mathematical theories about how a search would look if you searched in the algorithm space. Um, and then we spent quite a bit of time adapting those theories so they would work for um, genetic systems. And so the thing to remember is the way change happens in, in our bodies or in evolutionary in, in nature is that you have random mutations at the level of DNA, which are to first order, pretty much random. But those are then translated by some process that turns them into phenotypes, which is basically into for ourselves, it turns us into bodies. Um, and so that second step is quite complicated. It's basically what takes the recipe and turns it into the dish. And so when you think about that, then this random changing of the, of the genotypes is a little bit like typing randomly into a computer program. The program has to be then processed. And so a simple example would be if I randomly type onto my laptop, and I type into a computer program, I might type something like print 01 500 times. Right? That's a very short program, 21 characters. But then you would see 500 01s. 500 times. Yeah, a thousand long sequence, which has a nice pattern to it. And so if you were just looking at the outputs of my typing and you didn't know um, what I was typing, you would still know that I was typing into a computer program because you notice that sometimes you get really long sequences coming out with patterns to them. And now, the interesting thing is, is that there's a whole mathematical theory behind those. It tells us, for example, that most patterns have no short code. So if you saw 
long patterns um, that had um, the long patterns, the old long patterns you see should have some kind of short description. So that would be a kind of abstract way of thinking about it. So part of it is this kind of this has been mathematized and is well understood. And then of course we make predictions about we do it for specific maps from DNA to phenotypes. So like the DNA that changes that makes the little proteins have sticky patches at different places. We can work out how that works and then look at what kind of shapes you find. And then you can look in nature where people have there's yeah. 34,000 of those structures that we looked at that other people have found and put into a database that a huge amount, you know, thousands and thousands of man years of work to characterize these things. They're all in a big database. You can go and search that database and then say, well, how much symmetry is in there? So I've got a bunch of collaborators that are specialized in that part of hmm. the work, which are really biologists that understand really in detail what these things mean and how to understand the symmetries. And so they looked at this and analyzed it and said, this is what the symmetries look like. And then I made predictions where I think they should look like, and then they agreed, and then we got excited and published it. Mm. So it could have been that I made these theories and you know, I made these predictions, they went and looked at all the data, and then they didn't, they didn't agree, <laughs> Sorry, and then it's like, you know, another beautiful theory killed by some ugly facts. <laughs> <laughs> this happens all the time, so. Hey, Language of God listeners. If you enjoy the conversations you hear on the podcast, we just wanted to let you know about our website, biologos.org, which has articles, videos, personal stories, and curated resources for pastors, students, and educators. And we've recently launched a new animated video series called Insights. These short videos tell stories and explore many of the questions at the heart of the faith and science conversation. You can find them at biologos.org insights, or there's a link in the show notes. All right, back to the show. So one of your uh, co-authors in the article in the New York Times about this paper that you published, one of your co-authors said, it's like we found a new law of nature. So explain that a little bit, because I think we have this cartoon understanding of, of evolution sometimes, that here's the genetic code, there's a random mutation, if that produces something that survives better and produces more offspring, that's what goes on. And so we just have in our mind this random process of producing variations and then the natural selection that the best, most fittest ones produce more of their own kind. But there's something else going on in here? Is this what we're, you're yeah. saying? Yeah, I mean, a new law of nature is a bit of hyperbole, um, <laughs> but, um, but that's, you know, people, journalists like this kind of stuff. And um, uh, I think what we're saying is, I think this, the way you explained it is very helpful because the way evolution is often popularized is as a, random process, and I think that metaphor in people's minds quickly turns into purposeless process, kind of random, mm -hmm. and if you're lucky and you get something that's slightly more fits, then that will survive. But what we're saying is, it may be true that the mutations are random, but because they're being processed, just like my random typing into my computer program is processed, certain things are much more likely to happen than others, so their outputs are a lot less random than you might think. So the new law of nature that my collaborator was trying to um, talk about is really the idea that the things that this random process throws up are much less random than you might think, much more predictable than you might think. So it's something interesting that we think that nature is actually much more structured in the kinds of potential things it can produce that natural selection can then work on. So, so natural selection can only work 
with those things that have it's been thrown up in the first place. Yeah. Secondly, it's called variation. So you've got mutations, they generate variations. So for example, your kids might be slightly taller than you, might be slightly shorter than you, and if that's better, then in better, strictly means something very simple. It just means that you'll have more offspring. Produces more offspring. offspring. Or more viable offspring. Then that, over time, that will dominate in a population. I mean, natural selection is a kind of truism, right? So mm -hmm. if, for example, um, let's say that there's a Louis genes which are mine, there's Tump genes which are yours, and if yours are such that you have four kids on average, and I have two that survive, and your kids keep that, and they've got four again, then after one generation, there'll be four stumps and two Louis. After two generations, there'll be 16 stumps <laughs> and four Louis. After three generations, there'll be 32 stumps and only eight Louis. And after a while, there'll be only stumps. Left what a over. world. What a, exactly. what a picture you've painted for us. For us and that, but that's natural selection, basically. It's all the same. Right? So let me see if I understand this. So let's, instead of taking a human person, take some other kind of organism that uh, we can talk about varying in different ways. So you, you talked about height. We could, so we might say size, color, consistency. There you know, all of these different possibilities that we kind of have in our mind this cartoon version where all of those possibilities are equally likely to exist in reality and then the ones that are the most fit produce more of their kind and go on. But am I understanding you to say, no, not all of those are going to appear with the same probability? I am, I am exactly. So I, I should qualify slightly to say for, for properties like height and size, this might not be such a bad approximation, but for many other properties, like this, the self-assembling structures or RNA structures, this is patently not true at all. Certain structures are exponentially more likely to appear than others. Mm. And I think that's, so you give, a good, you give a very good summary of it. I'll give you another example, which I think is interesting because I, because it has some links to the kinds of critiques that people from the intelligent design community mm -hmm. make. So we looked at another molecule, which is called RNA. So you probably remember from high school biology that you have got DNA and RNA and proteins. And the main thing you learn is that the RNA makes a copy of the DNA, gets transcribed in the DNA, and then the RNA gets translated into proteins. That's messenger RNA. But there's another kind of RNA called functional RNA, which can do stuff like it can be a catalyst or it can be structural. And so it actually is active in your, it's not, it's not trying to translate a message. It's, it's actually, making it's proteins? Making, no, it's not making proteins. It's actually behaving like a protein. It is a, oh. It's not, no, it's not a protein. It's not a protein. But it behaves like it a protein. It's called functional. So it's, okay. And like, this is one of the reasons why sometimes people think maybe early life was RNA based because mm. RNA can be will carry information and it can do catalysis, which mm -hmm. is what you need for metabolism. So basically, RNA can behave like a protein. That's very cool. So people have looked at these functional RNAs and they, they're like long, it's a long string that, that folds into a really well-defined structure. Like a, it's a, you think about it as a little string that you roll up into like a little ball and it's got to have a very specific shape for it to do the, the job that it does. So if it's part of a structure, it needs to have the right shape or, it's, or the structure is going to be different each time. And so that's a good example of why you would need to have the exact same structure. So we studied these structures. There are lots and lots of possibilities. And I'll, for the podcasters, definitely ignore the details of this, but you can characterize these structures by, by, um, certain, by the patterns of who binds to whom. And we did this, for example, for different lengths structures. So I'll, I'll give you a, a fun little fact to think about. There are, the RNA is made of this long sequence of four different nucleotides. And so at each point, 
in the sequence, you can have four different ones. So how fast does that grow? Well, I have four at the first place, then four at the second one. So I got four times four possibility, 16 ways of making just two times four again, and it grows really, really quickly. So quickly that by the time I get to length 79, <laughs> if I made every string of length 79, which is, and I weighed them, they'd weigh more than the earth. No. Yeah? And if I made every string of length 126, they would weigh more than the observable universe. So I, let's ignore dark matter, right? just the universe you can see. That's kind of wild when you think about it. So we thought, I, so I call that hyper-astronomical number because it's the first length that's larger than the universe. So you might think, okay, if, if I have that many possible strings of length 126, right, and I randomly search them, I'm never going to get the same thing more than once because I can only search an unfathomably small fraction of them on Earth because you don't have enough mass to make them. So we looked at structures of length 126, and with this particular method that we used, we think there's actually about a trillion structures that you could make out of length 126. And then we looked at the ones that are found in nature, and we found there's only 68 there, so a very small fraction of them. That's, okay, okay, fine. But the interesting thing is, if I just randomly pick sequences and predict what structures I'm going to find with most likelihood, then I more or less can predict which 68 I'll find, and those are the ones that I see in nature. So we can predict them based on just about a million random sequences. Mm. We can find all the structures that nature uses of that length to make all the biological diversity that RNA is used for. So it's really interesting that you can quite quickly search through the space. And the reason for that is because the space doesn't use all 10 to the, a trillion sequences. It only uses a really small fraction of them. And those, those are all the ones that actually turn out to have short codes to make to, to, to fold. So those ones that have short codes to make structures are the ones that you find. So there's a kind of a counterpart to this. On one hand, um, the searching the algorithms seems a bit abstract, but it actually allows you to find things really quickly. And it turns out that you're, for reasons that we don't understand, you're finding good ones really quickly. So one of the big issues in, and I think it's a, a I, I think it's, a genuine question that you'll see people that are skeptical of evolution, they'll say, well, the sequence space is so big, it's unsearchably big. So you could never find anything in it. So therefore, there must have been either, um, you know, God must have done something or there must be something miraculous. Or if you're an atheist, you'd say, this tells us that we're just here by a random fluke of accident and there's no purpose to us because had the world been slightly different, we wouldn't be here. So make sure I understand the critique coming from intelligent design or whomever, that the, the possibility space is so, so enormously large that we'd never just by random chance get the one, those 68 out of the trillion that actually work to produce life. Yeah. So they're saying there's not enough time in the, in yeah. the evolutionary development to find just those. And your response to that is, no, these aren't all equally probable in terms of which, which uh, of those variants we'd get. Exactly, I think that you've, you've explained it extremely well. So that's exactly <laughs> right. So I'm saying some of them are much more probable than others. And it's kind of interesting because this, I think a really legitimate question of how could you find function in this extremely large space of possibilities seems really hard until you realize that there might be other principles at work, which is the one that we think we've described, that say that you could find it, that you, you keep finding the same things, and they turn out to be quite functional. So what I've not 
explains is why the ones that are easy to find are also so easily functionalized. That we don't know. Mm. It's completely mysterious. But what, I, but what I have explained is why you see the ones that you see. And that I've also explained that they're actually really easy to find. And that's kind of cool. I think it's really cool. Good. And I mean, in fairness to the intelligent design, my friends in the intelligent design community for whom I profoundly disagree, it was talking to them and then pointing it out to me that this is a real problem that got me thinking about this. Like, really? I, I thought, well, that's kind of interesting because actually that is a good question. That space is very big. How on earth does that work? Mm. And so then I started thinking, well, how does it work? And I spent a lot, you know, probably 15 years ago is when I first started thinking about this. And then I started thinking, you know, how should I think about that? And then I, then I slowly but surely came upon this way of thinking about algorithms. Mm. So related question, uh, a few episodes back, maybe 10 or 12 episodes back on the podcast, we talked to Simon Conway Morris down the road in Cambridge, that other little little town out here, right? And who's become very well known for convergence, evolutionary convergence, which also drastically narrows down the possibility space of the kinds of things. Are these two related in some way? So I think they are. So I think that the reason why you see convergences in, like, say, RNA structures is precisely because the ones that are easy to find are going to come appear again and again and again. In fact, an interesting story with Simon is Simon is one of the reasons I got interested in evolution. Mm -hmm. So the way evolution is often kind of popularized is as just a random process, kind of one damn thing after another. And it, that's fine, but it's not interesting for physicists because we <laughs> want to find patterns in there. Mm -hmm. So I kind of thought, well, it's kind of interesting, but it just be a, a random process, and I'm not that, it's not, it's not interesting. Then I came across Simon and his book, Life Solution, mm -hmm. where it has this incredible list of convergences, everything from the camera eye, or my favorite one, which is the anteater. And so there's anteaters, there's Africa, North America, um, and in Australia, for example, they're all anteaters, which are very strange animals. They've got a long snout. They've got incredibly big salivary, salivary glands because ants don't like to be eaten. They've got an incredibly rugged stomach because <laughs> ants don't like to be eaten and are poisonous. And so you might think that that's only would have only evolved once because there's such odd. Two came two off the arc and went to all. That's right, exactly. Yeah, and, they, and you know, there's a in Gabon where I grew up. There's one called the pangolin, which is scales, scales. The pangolin. Pangolin. Isn't that in Asia as well? In Asia, it's a different kind of pangolin. Connected, connected to SARS-CoV-2 virus. Wasn't oh, this it? is one of the one of the theories about SARS, exactly. But the pangolin is a is a, the one that I grew up with, and that's um, mm. is in Gabon. But like the um, the spiny anteater in Australia is actually most close is a marsupial. It's linked to the platypus. It's a completely different kind of. Sorry, it's a, sorry, not marsupial. It's an egg-laying mammal, like a like a platypus. It's a completely different kind of animal. And so you see, these are they've all in, evolved completely independently. So I remember reading about that and thinking mm. that's just strange that evolution keeps doing this. There must be patterns there. And so then I got excited, and I talked a lot to Simon at the time, who said to me, "Why don't you find a theory for convergence, like some kind of mathematical equation that would explain it?" Now I haven't gotten there yet, but this is, I think, one part of a much more complicated puzzle. And, and the, there's a deeper point, which is that I think the way evolution is often popularized is as a completely random process with random outcomes. And I think that's an unfortunate use of words, because when we hear random, we often think of something that has no purpose. And so for me, it was interesting, because 
when I read about Simon's work, I realized there is some pattern there. It's so, the space possibility is so constrained, I'm going to try to figure out what that is, and maybe my physics thinking can shed some light on that. Whereas if it was just a truly random process, I wouldn't really be able to do so. But actually, in another way, another thing I'm getting at is what makes this interesting is that it suggests that our evolutionary history is a lot more predictable than we might have thought. And that makes it, I think, interesting and more fun to think about. It also tells us something about metaphor. So I just mentioned, I think I've mentioned a few times, that the metaphors that we, like the, there are other levels of meaning that we give to the word random, which are tends to become quite negative ones. Whereas there's actually a technical word in the scientific literature for something that we can't predict very well, but we can predict maybe it's average or something. We call it stochastic. So if we said instead evolution is a stochastic process, um, then nobody would, or people would be unlike, less likely to think that somehow it has some kind of metaphysical meaning to it. Just stochastic process. In fact, we, stochastic processes are all around us. We can, in fact, prove that a lot of high-dimensional optimization problems are much more efficiently solved by stochastic processes than they are by non-stochastic processes. And so if you were God and you wanted to make a world that could make itself, then a stochastic process is probably the most efficient way mm. of doing it. But when I say random process, it sounds like there's, there's no, nothing's happening. It's, it's just completely unpredictable. But that's not true if you think about it in a more tactical sense. Okay, so let's uh, bring this back to God trying to decide how to make a world that can make itself. Because the, the sort of first level of at least my understanding of your work is showing people who were trying to inject God's direct action into processes because they didn't think they were explainable by natural means. And you're saying, no, it turns out that it really does look like this is explainable from the laws of physics and whatever you know, we're, we're understanding by those. But there's a second level to this that starts to make us think, at least to bring back into conversation um, those of us who are interested in these kinds of questions at the intersections of, of science and, and religion, that maybe there is something deeper here that isn't uh, knock-down, drag-out proof, but at least is highly resonant with those of us who think God may have had something to do with all of this. Is that fair to say? Maybe, yeah. I think, I, I, I think it's... I think these kinds of natural theological arguments are often very hard to run well because, but for sure, this picture of evolution is a lot less random in its outcomes than the traditional way you might have been taught in school. I think that is, for many people, at the very least, it makes evolution feel much less like a metaphysical, anti-God right, right. kind of so, for instance, when we were talking with Simon, I brought up the, the fact that many Christians interested in his work have tried to leverage it as a new kind of fine-tuning argument. So the, the subtitle to, of his book was Inevitable Humans, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? So that it, it, it sounds like people want, can take this idea and say, oh, God knew that humans were going to come out of this evolutionary process at the end. It must have been designed that way from the beginning. And I asked Simon about that particular, and he does not like that interpretation very well. Yeah, but, but yeah. is there any, I'm, 
again, we're not looking for a mathematical proof of God's existence in that sense as much as trying to find ways that these can, that science and theology might be fruitfully at least brought into conversation yeah. with each other. Or? Maybe. I think I, I think I share Simon's concerns about running with these things too fast because the interesting point is if you take Simon's point of view, which is much more a meta-theory than mine, right, where he says, you know, something like humans are inevitable. My theories don't tell us that this is true, but, you know, Simon has kind of this, he says, let's assume that's true. You can contrast that with the kind of Stephen Jay Gould very famously wrote about um, rerunning tape of life. And he claimed if you run tape of life, you wouldn't get anything get like humans. Completely different things. Because of these little random steps that would push you one way or the other. And sometimes in the back of that kind of contingency thinking is the idea that the possibility space is very big, and you start somewhere else, you start in a different part of the possibility space, and so you end up somewhere different. That's effectively what's happening, I think, with people like Gould. Now, interestingly, if you're a theist or a Christian, you might say, well, either one of them could be God. So if God just has to do a little tweak to the direction of life, and suddenly this like humans appear, that might be also more nicer for theism, because God doesn't have to be continuously intervening, he just has to do a small tweak and reappear, because the possibility space is so big, he just has to start at the right place. Mm. So, there's, so when you start thinking about it this way, it's not obvious necessarily which of the two is the most congenial to theism. I think what's really interesting about it is that you can see that the science can give you very different metaphors for how you think about where humans come from. And so I think one of the problems with this whole discussion about where did we come from is that people think that where we came from determines who we are and what our value is and our purpose is. For Christians, we believe that our value and purpose comes from the fact that we are made and loved by God, not by our origin. In fact, that's a very fundamental Christian belief. It doesn't matter whether we're rich or poor, black or white, came from high class or from low class, we're all equally valuable in God's sight. And so it's important for Christians to remember that's a, a deep theological um, principle that also holds for our physical origins. So whether we came about by God giving um, inevitable humans how he set up the process, or whether he came about because God tweaked the process at some point in the evolution history, doesn't determine anything about us that's important in terms of value. It's a genuinely interesting question, interesting scientific question, but it's not clear to me how much it tells us theologically. Mm, okay. And I can turn this around and say, I think one of the reasons, and I think I understand this reason, why people of faith are often suspicious of evolution is because a lot of people who don't believe in God, atheists use evolution to try to prove that there is no God in one way or the other. And you can see that in many, many examples. Richard Dawkins is a good example, but there's many others that do that. And so if you are an average person on the street, you hear this and you think, well, if evolution tells me there's no God, so much the worse for evolution. But interestingly, I think people like Dawkins are also natural theologians. They look at the natural mm -hmm. world, they look at their particular interpretation of it, and then they say, ah, this tells me that there is nothing, you know, there's this world that we're looking at, there's no good, no evil, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference in one of his, Dawkins' famous lines, where he basically looks at the world and says, there's randomness there, ergo there's no God involved, ergo there's no meaning or purpose. That's a kind of theology, theology as he's well. He's deriving theological conclusions from, from empirical yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so he's a, he's a, he's a <laughs> you might call him, a, you know, a, a natural atheologian, right? right? But that's effectively what he's doing. So I the process is the same. The process is the same. So I think 
Christians and non-Christians often fall into this trap, where they think that meaning and purpose derives from these particular mechanisms of the natural world. Whereas, I just gave the example of whether the evolution is contingent or predictable, either way is consistent, could be consistent with God um, acting or not acting. And it doesn't really matter that much. Okay, so we are uh, running out of time here. Can you speak a little more personally to some of these questions? If we don't want to have our theology and science so intricately entwined that we think we can derive theological conclusions from science, are these running on separate tracks for you? Or are there points of contact between science and theology in your own mind that you think are fruitful at least? So I think at the very least looking at this from it. So I think what you might be able to say with something like this on the one hand, so if, if scientists have been influenced by certain atheistic worldviews, that might close them off to certain ways of thinking about science. And maybe a theological worldview will give you some interesting new ideas. So that's one way that this could interact. And I think that has been true for some aspects of evolutionary theory, that a particular worldview that was based on a kind of contingency resonated with people's sense of, of, the, of atheology, and so they kind of ran with that longer than they maybe should have. So that's one way of thinking about it could be fruitful. I think that um, Christians are called by God to take care of this earth and to also, I think, investigate it. So that's another understand, way to yeah. understand it. So I think understanding gives us a sense of God's, God's grandeur, and I think it it's a, can be a glorious calling to do. That's another way that these things interact. And I think as the more we understand about these processes, the more beautiful they typically become. So I think um, my own instinct is the more I understand about evolution, the more intricate and beautiful it will become. And so that's a theological kind of instinct that I have. And I think that is also a motivating factor. But do I think that the details of how the science works are going to affect the details of my theology, I don't think that's, I think that's unlikely. Or the other direction, do the details of your theology affect at all how you in, even interpret the scientific details I, I don't ever? think so. No, I don't think they do. I think these things are, it's not like they're running separate tracks. I think that's the, the wrong way of thinking about it. I think a better way of thinking about it is to say, you know, I might have a big circle of everything that can be, that, um, can be knowable. And that circle is would be might be a theological circle, everything about God and, and et cetera. And a subcircle of that is science. Mm. That's one way of thinking about the world, but it's not the only way of mm -hmm. thinking about the world. And science is extremely powerful. It's probably the greatest thing that humans have ever invented. On the other hand, it doesn't answer our most important questions like what does it mean to be human or why are we here or what's the purpose of my life? Those are questions that science, and I don't think it, neither science or any conceivable advance of science could answer. That doesn't minimize science, it's just as a different way of thinking about the world. So these really important questions like, what does it mean to be human? What's the value of a human being? Um, how should I live? These are questions that we answer on religious grounds, for example. And if you're not religious, then you have to find some other metaphysical type of argument to derive these ideas from. Science doesn't give you those answers. So I'm not saying they're running on different tracks. I'm just saying science is a subset of a bigger set of ideas about the world, and those include questions of meaning and purpose. And certainly as a Christian, I think I find those questions, those things answered in Revelation in the Bible, 
in the incarnation, the fact that God came to earth in human form, those are really profound things that tell me something about my world. I believe that humans have intrinsic value because they are made and loved by God. That's something I believe is absolutely true. Now, you may believe that humans have intrinsic value um, for some other reason, which is great. Um, but I'm telling you the reason why I believe that's true. Good. Well, what uh, questions do you hope get answered before your uh, career here at the Oxford Physics Building is done? What, what questions in science? Or, sure. Well, the, the, for, you know, here in this building, we talk about lots of other things. So one of the biggest questions is finding a quantum theory of gravity, which some of <laughs> my colleagues um, here on this floor are working on. I'd love to see that answered. That would be cool. And I think, you know, a, a, a more unified theory of evolution that takes into account these biases and how the possibility spaces are searched. I think that's, that's, a big, that's a grand goal that I'd love to see answered in some way or the other. And then any uh, theological questions you'd like to see answered before your time here on Earth is done? Um, I think the, theology often brings more questions than answers. <laughs> And um, science, good science does the same. It brings more questions than answers. So hopefully you know, we'll have these things that will answer and they'll raise new interesting questions. So um, I, don't, I can't think of theological questions that I'd like answered, but I've got lots of theological interests that I'd like to explore further. Um, that's maybe for a different time. We like to uh, end these interviews now by asking you, what books have you been reading lately? Well, that's a good question. I have been reading a lot of children's books to my children. <laughs> In other words, I've just, I was reading a very interesting book um, by a, um, an American biologist called Arlen Stoltzfus, which is about mutations and evolution. So it's rather boringly, very closely linked to uh, my research topic. Mm -hmm. um, those have been the books I've been reading. Very good. Thanks for talking to us, Ard. Thanks. Language of God is produced by BioLogos. It has been funded in part by the Fetzer Institute, the John Templeton Foundation, and by individual donors who contribute to BioLogos. Language of God is produced and mixed by Colin Hugerworth. That's me. Nate Mulder is our assistant producer. Our theme song is by Breakmaster Cylinder. BioLogos offices are located in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in the Grand River watershed. If you have questions or want to join in a conversation about this episode, find a link in the show notes for the BioLogos forum or visit our website, biologos.org, where you'll find articles, videos, and other resources on faith and science. Thanks for listening.